next bit of technology that won't work is my iPad, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's why we don't trust technology. All right. So the first three chapters, Paul has just been expressing tremendous gratitude and trying to help the church really be fired up about what God is doing among them. For chapter four and five, we're going to kind of break up chapter five into two sections. So we're not going to talk about husband-wife relationship until next month. And then we're going to go into um, Ephesians six and talk about the powers and principalities and the full armor of God. And so let's read Ephesians chapter four together. And then uh, we'll read, we'll read chapter four. Can I get a volunteer to read all of chapter four up until verse four of chapter five? All, go for it, Fred. All of chapter four up until verse four of chapter five. Yes. Chapter 5, verse 4. The end of verse 4. Okay. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been, apportioned, has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who has descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, false talk, or coarse, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for reading that. And so Paul begins this portion. Um, <clears throat> of this letter and he says as a prisoner of the Lord I'm urging you to bear with one another in love to bear with someone means to undergo whatever trial without giving in you know like he's like just undergo it now why do you think he wants us to bear with one another in love now think about the first three chapters in particular why does Paul want us to bear with one another in love this is a lot of transition time it's a lot of transition happening. Okay. Well, I think we're human. Or at least, you know, thinking about him talking about Jesus and then what's expected of us, you know, in the later chapters where, you know, God is love and so bearing with one another, we're, we're going to sin, we're going to hurt one another. And I think that it's, it's a high calling, but I'm assuming that that's the reason why, knowing that we're going to hurt each other, we're going to mm-hmm. let each other down, especially, you know, where they were transitioning into that. Yeah, that's definitely one of the reasons, but in chapter 3, Paul says the church being united, Jews and Gentiles together, mm-hmm. is a witness to the power structures of this world. And the, the challenge is when you get a group of diverse people, unity is very fragile. Mm-hmm. Just by um, default of diversity. Like some of us in here, you know, we, we, we've all been a part of the church long enough, even those of us who are really young, the worship wars are real. You know, some people are like, man, I'm a hymn guy. Like, let me just keep the hymns. And there's other people are like, I love the refrain of the same part. I love God and he loves me. And then the hymn people are like, that's not deep. That doesn't mean anything. It is like easy to get caught up in something like that. But then there's other components that are just completely different. Like, um, you know, polychronic versus monochronic in terms of time. So if you're the Caribbean, to be on time, if you're really family, doesn't feel like family. But if you're not from the Caribbean and you're from more of, especially like the European culture, to not be on time is disrespectful. And so for the Caribbean folk coming together with different people, we're we're all like, oh man, you're starting church 10 minutes, you're giving in to irresponsibility. But then the other group is like, jeez, you didn't wait for us. We're family. And you're like, oh, I know. it's just challenging. And yet to the glory of God, we come together and the world looks like I don't see places like this. I don't see places like this where we could come together. And everyone is having to bear with one another. The person who's like, the, the, the saints in here are so disrespectful for being 10 minutes late. And then the other person who's like, oh, gosh, you're, 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 you're so uptight for worrying about 10 minutes. The person who's like, I love the hymns. I love contemporary. The other person who's like, man, the brothers, all they talk about is football. And we do need to talk about Jesus. But all they talk about is football. This brother loves hiking. This brother doesn't love hiking. All these different things. It's so easy to break up. Why do you think there's so many denominations? Doctrinally, but also think just expression. It's easy to worship with people who are just like you or very similar to you. And so this is why Paul wants us to bear with one another in love. And how do we do it? How do we bear with one another in love? Make every effort to bear the, to be unified. Make every effort. He gives some characteristics on how we do it. But it does require every effort. But it's completely humble and gentle. Right? Humble, yeah. gentle, and patient. Yeah. Humble, gentle, and patient. You know, when, when the Greek talks about humility, it's really something that was primarily used for a servant. A servant had to practice humility. 
a servant being a slave. Like you had to know your role. You had to walk into a room and say, I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. I'm not here to do whatever. Imagine if everyone came into the fellowship, like I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. The gentleness. Again, not being overly impressed by a sense of oneself importance. So it, it, this, this could have easily been, they could have easily chosen uh, meekness to describe this word as well as a synonym. But walking in like, I'm not, I'm not as important as I think I am. You know, a lot of times when we get caught up in these wars, it's because most of us think we're super important or that our view or our way of doing things is the most important. But if we go in like, okay, amen, it, it does something. And then patience. Just putting up with stuff that annoys you. You know, I think I, I, I think I could speak for most of us in here. We put up with annoying stuff every day at the workplace when you but when you're getting paid, you look past it. <laughs> now, in the kingdom, you're not getting paid by anyone, but the eternity is what we're looking towards. So we we get we look past it. Phone's going off in the middle of lessons, we look past it. So the spirit wants us to be unified. This is what Paul has been talking about the first three chapters. He's like, the world needs to see this unified body of believers, but not only see a unified body of believers, but see a body of believers unified around the person of Jesus. So he says the seven ones. Why do you think Paul is emphasizing the ones here? One church, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one body. Unity. Unity. Okay. What is it? I mean, with the Gentiles and Jews all coming together, it's not separate. So maybe emphasizing on their one. Yeah. Why else would he? You guys are on it, but why is like? Why is he? <clears throat> he's pushing this out there. The ones. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe for the Gentiles, they. Believe in more than one gods, maybe. Yeah, they did. That's usually what, what how they rolled. Is it more they sound like the barrier between Jews and Gentiles because there's always been segregation between classes, between religions. And mm-hmm. If you're one, you can't have that. Yeah, how many of you have ever played football? Okay, most of you have heard your coach say this during practice. Offense versus defense, you destroy the other person. During the game, this is one team. We root for each other. Defense, after you get your couple of plays, you look on the field and you support your teammates while they're out there, even though you're not out there. There's this idea that we are one. We all have this jersey on, and we are trying to win together. And what Paul is trying to communicate here is what um, the Rays were mentioning, that there's this deep unity that that supersedes anything. He didn't mention every single one he could have mentioned, but he mentioned these things. We all believe in the one Lord of Jesus. We all believe in the one baptism because we all participate in that one baptism. We all are part of this one body of Christ. We're all a part of this one faith. We're all a part of this one hope. He's like, this is who we are. We're unified. Do not let the world drag us apart over things that are not as important, which again, that's why it requires humility, gentleness, and patience. I think that it's really key here that the language implies that the unity of the spirit is the default of the church. Yeah, it's a gift too. He says, the spirit would have us all be unified, and we have to work at we have to work at that. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. make every effort. It's, it's something we have to work at because the spirit has a high standard. Yeah, you know the young Christians get this lesson really quickly, right? Like when they first get baptized, they love the church. It's the ones who've been around for a while that, you know, you got to be reminded, I got to work at this. And it's a gift. Like when I first got baptized, I thought this was the best thing. Now I've been around for a while. This is still awesome, but I see the cracks. I'm like, all right, this roof could be a little bit better. That's okay. And I see it. And someone's like, hey, the roof is leaking. But like that's been that way for five years. Don't worry about it. We're going to fix it one day. We're, and, and, but it takes a lot of humility to keep working at being unified. It's easy to quit. It's super easy to quit and say, I'm going to go find someone who's super like-minded. And I think even on a personal note, when you think about your own personal journeys, sometimes what, what caused us to change in eight, ten years of reading, studying, praying, experience, once we get somewhere, sometimes we want the person to get to where we were after eight years of that journey. Mm-hmm. 
in one second. Like now that I've gotten here and I see things a lot more better and a lot more clear, you need to conform because this is the right way. And you don't give them the same opportunity to grow, mature and experience their own journey in that area. And I think that's one of the things that I've seen divide the church a lot lately. And so, like um, Fred mentioned, the spirit insists on our unity. The spirit gives us unity and we have to pursue that unity with everything that we are. So in verse 7, Paul alludes to Psalm 68. That psalm is basically talking about Moses' ascent up to the mountain to get the law and, you know, all the amazing things there. And Paul is saying, well, Jesus did something similar to that. He goes up this mountain. He brings back God's will. He ties the captives. He takes the captives captive. So that's the powers and principalities he's going to talk. Yeah, he already talked about and we'll talk about later. And he gave the church gifts. And so verses 9 and 10, he's talking about his death and ascension, essentially. And so he says he gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors. For what? Why does he give those those roles, those offices? So that we can be unified. So we can be unified. For sure. For sure. We're actually going to touch on that a little bit in verse 13 through 16. But something in verse, verse before that, in verse uh, 12, to equip people for works of service. You know, God, God gives us these five roles. In so many ways, Jesus fulfilled all five of these things for the body of believers. He was the first one sent from the Father. He was a prophet. He brought the good news everywhere he went, which is what an evangelist does. He was a teacher. He said he's the good shepherd. He was all five of these things. And so no one person can embody all five of these things. So God gives that gift to a multitude of people. I think a healthy fellowship has all these components in it. But if you don't have it, you roll with it the best way you know how. But those roles are not intended to do church for everyone and everyone just clap them on like, yo, you do it. It's to equip people to be the body of Christ. And I think that's really important. Like, my role is to equip people for um, works of service in terms of evangelism. Lincoln used to serve as an elder. That His role was to equip people to prepare people for shepherding in that role. Fred serves as a teacher. His role is to educate us with the scriptures and to teach us how to use these scriptures as we go out into the different spaces that we occupy to the glory of Jesus. And that's really important that we understand that, that the, the, these roles, Paul was trying to say, ultimately equip us by maturing us. That's one of the most difficult things. I think we have for a long time, and it's no one's fault, have a long time settled for shallow discipleship. Like, what is a mature Christian for most people? I would say, if you pray, read your Bible, go to church, they would say that's a mature Christian. A super fired up Christian is one who's in Bible studies. A super, super fired up Christian is one who's serving. A super, super, super apex Christian gives to the poor. You do those things, you're like, wow, that's Jesus, Jesus. But if I pray, read my Bible, and go to church, I'm a Christian. <clears throat> the most mature Christian is the one who loves like Christ. And to love like Christ will impact and stain every component of your life. And how does that Christian learn how to love like Christ? Through reading the scriptures, through praying, through communing, through serving. How do they love others like Christ? They help people. They serve people. They share the gospel. And so the role of these offices is to get to the church where... We are loving and living like as if God was actually among us. This is why he says in verse 5, be imitators of God. Like it is a high calling. And I think sometimes it's easier because, you know, the cost of discipleship. To learn to love well, it's a, it's a journey. But it's also equally a cost if we don't ever learn how to love well. We miss out on what Christ has on offer for his body of believers. Which I think is just really important. So... The church is his body. Like we collectively represent Jesus to the people around us. High calling. 
high calling. We represent Jesus in every area that we walk around in. When you're at work, you don't put away your Christianity. Maybe you do it differently, but you don't put away your Christianity. When you're at home, prayerfully, you did not put away your Christianity. When you're with Christians, you don't put away your Christianity. In every area, your life is stained with the fragrance of Christ. And we don't want shallow discipleship. We want deep-rooted discipleship. And I, and, I have, and I think I think in the past, maybe it was an in or out kind of thing. I, even when I first got baptized, it felt that way. Like, you better do these things, or you better get off. Like, one, one minister was preaching, and he said, the train is moving fast, so you better jump off or get left behind. And then a guy sitting next to me was like, well, if it's going so fast, I don't even think anyone could jump on. And then the whole church just broke out laughing. And he told the brother, be quiet on the pulpit. Be quiet. <laughs> but <laughs> he did. He's like, this is not funny. Why are you laughing? <laughs> and then he had no idea he made everyone laugh even more when he said that. It just got, it got awkward. Then it got funny again. Then it got awkward. He's like, what's going on here? <laughs> but we have to understand that. Discipleship needs to be done the way Jesus did. Jesus worked with people, but at the same time, if someone wasn't ready for it, Jesus moved on. Find one passage in the four Gospels where Jesus begged someone to stick around. At the same time, Jesus knew probably the whole three years he was with Peter. Brother, you're going to deny me three times. And even though I'm trying to show you the way, the truth, and the life, you're going to pull out a sword and chop someone's ear off. And... You're going to curse. I see it all coming, Peter, but he worked with him. He worked with him gently through that whole situation, and then he reinstated him. I think in the past, again, we try to force people to transform. There needs to be a speaking the truth in love that we just read. There needs to be a helping and maturing, but it takes time. And we have to just be patient as the Holy Spirit does his work in the lives of all the saints. And so, how do we know when <clears throat> one of the tell signs that you're spiritually immature? Especially in the age of deconstruction. When you are being tossed back and forth doctrinally. I think there's nothing wrong with getting a more robust understanding of Jesus and learning him and seeing him more clearly. And I think that journey is important. That journey is necessary. I think, you know, people who experience massive deconstruction will push back against me heavy for what I'm about to say, which is fine. Because they say, you don't tell people how to deconstruct. I'm going to do it anyway. <clears throat> when you lose Jesus, to quote a blogger, you just become a Democrat, man. Like, you go from whatever you were to, you're just a Democrat. A Democrat. You're a glorified Democrat. You just want what the Democratic Party wants. And on, on the other end, when you don't get, when you don't mature in Christ and start to see the nuance, you just become a hardcore fundamentalist. Where you can't see the nuance in Christ. Where Jesus could say on one hand, bless are the poor. Um, I don't condemn this woman who's caught in adultery. But then at the same time, expect holiness. But if you're like, nope. If we just, you, you, so we have to understand the further and further we walk with Jesus the more we live within the tension of what it means to be in the kingdom. And so I, I really want to encourage you, if you're in a season of deconstruction right now, nothing wrong with getting rid of all the bad stuff. Jesus is not the bad stuff. Second, you should deconstruct in community. I will not come behind you and say, hey, man, you're doubting how you read the scriptures or what you believe about the scriptures. That's okay. You, you, you work and wrestle with that. In community, we talk about it when we see each other and we love each other. You're wrestling with women's roles. That's a hot topic. And you're like, how do I, what does God want? And, you, and you're, you're, you're feeling a lot there. We do it in community. We do it in community. We look at the scriptures. We wrestle. We pray together. And that's really what the early church did. I mean, a lot of times Paul is teaching things that are, if you read the Bible enough, you're like, oh, that's pretty basic. But he had to remind people. So that's my word to my friends in this room, if you're deconstructing or if you're listening online, you're deconstructing, that's my word. And if you want to push back and say, I can't tell people how to do it, well, I just did, and I love you. Mm -hmm. um, does that make sense, guys? Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> doctrinal immaturity. 
that's when you know you're not doing doing well. So if these seven ones you start to let go of, that's a, that should be a red flag in your head. I don't believe there's actually one body. I think there's several bodies. If you mean li li lowercase b, yeah, sure. Casco Bay is a body. This person is a body. But if you mean capital B, you're off. I believe there's more than one God. Okay, you're off. I believe there's more than one Lord. Okay, you're off. And that's okay to have a season like that. But then reorient yourself back to the truth. And be grounded and solidified. And I just want to encourage you to do that in community. And part of the community can't... TikTok is... How many of you got TikTok? I refuse. Praise God. God. Come on. No. This is like this is this is one of the rarest rooms. Let's go. You got Any temptation to even have it is nullified because my phone is not like the most advanced. I only have so many apps on my phone. I have it on my phone though. So he's 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 experiencing some temptation. We're gonna pray for him that he never gets a phone call. <laughs> he keeps his phone. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate your honesty, brother. But yeah, TikTok theology it it wrecks Christianity in two minutes. It promotes Christianity in two minutes. Anything that could be broke torn down in two minutes probably need to get torn down in two minutes. And anything that could be built up in two minutes should be questioned. And so this is not the room I'm speaking to with TikTok, but I just want to say that because I know that's where a lot of people have started their deconstruction journey. A solid two-minute TikTok video, and next thing you know, they're doubting everything. And I think that's that speaks to uh epidemic that the church is facing in macro. Okay, so why do you guys think Paul says you must not live like the Gentiles? He's like, I insist on it. I think the Gentiles are consumed with worldly things. So, like, I, I understand Paul is talking to Gentiles and Jews in this passage, but um, Gentiles who have not become Christians, um, or I guess, I guess any Jew in this time is going to grow up in a religious environment. Mm -hmm. So, regardless of their doubts... God is going to be, some knowledge of God is going to be in their head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at this point in time, Christianity is not, has never been popular. And so, for the average Gentile, they have no idea yeah. what God is, Jesus, any of that, the prophets. No, absolutely, that's a good point. Um, anyone else? Why does he insist that they do not live like Gentiles? It's a bad witness. It doesn't really. I mean, we're just living like everybody else. Yeah. There's no getting We're just the same as everybody else. Yeah. And what's going on with the Gentile hearts? At least from Paul's perspective. They're hard. They're hard. I don't know if anyone here has ever had a hard heart. It, it's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to worship. It is just discouraging. Hard hearts manifest themselves in different ways. You know, the cynic. You become like cynical of everything. Someone's happy and you get cranky. They're, oh, they're happy about their Christianity. Oh, I just want to throw a paper ball at them. You know, someone becomes a believer. You're like, oh, I bet they won't last a week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or you become the person who becomes reclusive. No one can find you. You don't want to be found. And everyone's like, they're out there somewhere and we're looking for them. Mm -hmm. Or you become contentious. Everything causes a conflict. You become immoral. Like the sense that used to bother you don't even bother you anymore. So like you look at porn and you're like, oh, well. You know, you, you, you give in the lust, you're like, oh. You lie, you're like, oh. And, and you're no longer cut by not living like Christ. And so he insists that they don't live like the Gentiles who have learned to not pay attention to their conscience. They're serious. And like Tim mentioned, the bigger overall witness is our righteousness and holiness displays to the world that we know Jesus. Mm 
which is so important. Righteousness and holiness, again, gets a bad rep. I think Jesus' love is displayed in his holiness. I think we can't talk about the holiness, the love of Jesus without understanding the holiness of Jesus. And so what does holiness mean? It's to be set apart. What are we setting apart ourselves to? To be like Jesus. So there's the way that the world is, and as followers of Jesus, we're like Jesus in all settings. And again, this isn't easy. And, and I know most of us have been journeying with following Jesus. It hasn't been easy. And yet, that's the call. So, in verse 20, he says, put away. Was it verse 20? Oh, 24. He says, put away. Put away and then put on the new self. How do you think you put on the new self um, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness? How do you put on the new self? He, he's using a clothing, clothing metaphor. <clears throat> You, know, you have to make the choice. Put it, to put something on, it's, you're physically doing that and being conscious of, like, I'm going to be clothed by this, being led by this, making that choice. The critical word is being conscious of it. What are some things that you can do to put on Christ? And I think probably the million dollar question is, where are you tempted not to be like Christ? You know, I think a lot of men, when I see them playing sports, man, the Holy Spirit leaves the building. Mm. He's like, brother, he ain't nice no more. He wants to destroy it. I think Christians should be nice on the football field. I think they should be nice on the basketball field. I think they should be nice on the baseball field. You should represent Jesus everywhere you go. That doesn't mean you want to lose. Christians don't need to walk in there and say, hey, we're going to lose. <laughs> but you could do it in such a way that honors Jesus. Let's go. You don't turn me like, you sorry. <laughs> like would Jesus say that to that person? You're like, yeah, he would. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you got like this. <laughs> you do a very loving, loving. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. You <laughs> make feel loved. <laughs> He'll speak the truth. Now, maybe the person asked him, like Jesus, you think I'm the best player? <laughs> He's like, let me tell you a parable. <laughs> Like, all right, Jesus, thank you. Everyone's listening to the parable. Like, he basically tell you sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyhow, I think it's really important. Like you, like you mentioned, we got to be conscious. This is where spiritual formation comes in. If I have a hard heart, I have to start thinking, okay, what do I need to do in my life? What needs to change in my life so my heart can soften? What needs to happen? Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? Is there a rhythm that needs to be adopted? Maybe I need to start waking up in the morning and start praying or in the afternoon, say an afternoon prayer or in the evening, say evening prayer. Maybe I need fellowship more. But if you're in a season of a hardness of heart, reach out to someone. You can reach out to me. You can be like, hey, bro, my heart is hard. And we can start praying and discerning what we could do next to honor God as you journey on. But I think it's just really important that we do not live like Gentiles. As Paul says, we ins- he insists. And so righteousness and holiness. Righteousness, do the right thing. Holiness on um, so many levels is basically be the right person. And being the right person is being like Jesus. Like, let that be the person you are. You know, there's a couple of married folk in here. When you're in disagreements with your spouse, you got to be righteous and holy. No name calling. No passive aggressive, don't put away the milk type of stuff. Knowing that it gets the other person upset. No barely finishing drinks that make other people upset. All those things. Be righteous, be holy, be set apart. It's really important. Okay, uh we're gonna read well, let's let's look through twenty five. We're gonna kinda go a little bit quicker. <clears throat> so verses twenty five through chapter five, verse four, he basically lays out certain things that should characterize a Christian. In verse 25, he essentially says, don't tell, don't tell lies, but rather tell the truth. Lying in the American culture is supernatural. It's like natural. It's just like a lot of people lie. Like, oh, you mean natural as in normal? Because you said normal. supernatural. Like, extremely, <laughs> extremely <laughs> natural. <laughs> normal thing to do. But not supernatural, like coming from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, People lie a lot. 
They lie a lot. You're not just the politicians. Now, I'm gonna pick on the politicians a little bit because even when they get caught in the lie, like they show the replay, you said this, they still spin it. And you're like, am I crazy or are they crazy? They like still spin it like that's not what I meant. You're like, but that's exactly what you said. But in our culture, we lie all the time for varying reasons. And Paul says, don't lie, tell the truth. Telling the truth is scary sometimes because it comes with severe consequences at times. And yet, God's people are supposed to be characterized by the truth. I think those of you who are radical uh, peacemakers in the unrighteous sense, I call them um, peacemongers, it's because you don't tell the truth. When you just like, someone's hurting your feelings, someone's doing something you don't like, and you don't tell the truth. And so they keep doing it, and then one day you blow up and you look like a psychopath, and that's because you never told the truth. Or you're like, I'm done with it, they abused me, and they're like, no one even knew because you didn't tell the truth. Some, some of us, are, our egos are way too fragile because they're not built on Christ, so we don't know how to tell the truth. We need to be people who can tell the truth and not have fragile egos. In verse 26 through 27, don't lose your temper, but rather ensure that your anger is righteous. Again, I think it's, it's really normal to get upset about just about everything. Outrage is in. Like, just get upset, like... Did you hear what that person said? You, uh, you honk your horn. In Maine, no one honks their horn. We're pretty chill here, man. I think I'm the only one who's like wondering why no one's going nowhere in traffic. <laughs> but everyone else is like, hey, it don't matter where we're going. Like, That's the problem. <laughs> Our economy would be a lot better if it's a couple of more people who had an idea what they're trying to do today. Um, but traffic is good here. It's good. But there's other areas. Some of us, man, we get so upset about the little things. Like the little things, we just burden. Like someone shows up five minutes late. You know, I love my son. He's amazing. He turns around and asks me for the same thing. First, I offer something that he that I know he wants. He says no. <laughs> then he turns around two seconds later after I already started to walk away. Hey, can you get me that? <laughs> and I just remember sitting there like when I was a kid, I never used to do that because my mom would be livid. Once she offered it once, that was it. And now I got trauma. And I'm looking like, oh, man, is he trying to, like, punk? And he's too. He's not trying to do anything. <laughs> he just was indecisive. But it's easy to lose our temper with our children in that way. It's easy to lose our temper with our friends. Paul says do not lose our temper, but rather ensure that your anger is righteous. How do you know if your anger is righteous? If you're upset about the things that God would be upset about. If God would be upset about getting someone another cup of juice, then get fired up. But if you're like, oh, no, I can never see God doing that, redirect. Still, do not steal. Now, most people here don't steal. But I will put before you, some of us do steal from our employers. We probably clock out of work three hours before we actually clock out. You know, them lazy hours that when you're working and you're just like, man, I've already been left. My mind was out of here at 11 a.m. And you're like, you was only here for three hours. You're like, yep, and I got to stay till 5. I'm just going to coast and play Tetris. You're essentially stealing money, man. I don't mean to guilt you, but you're essentially stealing money. And you need to repent. Some of us, no one here, because I think everyone's in college. I know some college students steal financial aid money. They lie about taxes, and they need to repent. That was a big thing in Miami, man. Half the ministry was out here stealing money from the government. (laughs) You're like, this is the people of God. (laughs) I got to come in here. This whole ministry is going to go down for embezzlement. We're going to just like, what happened here? But that ministry, I think, has repented. But if they didn't, that's suffer the consequences for it. Um, don't use your words for evil. You know, I think sarcasm, we have to be very careful, guys. I know some of us, we're, we do playful banter to encourage people. But we have to be very careful. Sometimes you're being playful, but you say something sarcastic, and it really hurts someone's feelings. We have to be very mindful of our sarcasm. I, I would say if you hurt two people, man, it's probably a sign from the Holy Spirit you should stop being sarcastic, even if you enjoy it. No, um, so I, I was in a car with disciples, and I made a sarcastic joke toward a sister, and then another sister in the church uh, corrected me and said, don't do that, because that's hurtful. And I was like, you're right. And... So now I'm more self-conscious about it now. So 
I just told that story just to say, like, you know, it's okay to let someone know, hey, don't go there. Yep. Yeah, I think all, many of us probably in here have been sarcastic. I don't know. It's an American thing. They'll hang around our brothers from other parts of the country. They don't understand why we're so sarcastic with each other. I was hanging out with some brothers from Singapore, and a couple of other brothers were just going back and forth with the sarcasm, and he's like, you guys are really mean. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is just how they talk. It's just like, whatever. And then he shared Ephesians 429 at this past conference. He's like, they're mean. And I'm like, uh... I think if you if you really analyze sarcasm, there's really no place for it in our vocabulary. Mm. You're probably right, bro. I mean, because if we're if the only reason we get away with it is that it didn't hurt anybody. Mm. I mean, it still is. It's not. Really it's really not. Um, it doesn't fit in the godly pattern of speech. If you go through proverbs, if you go even passages like this. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, now I'm speaking as someone who can have a sarcasm about himself. And so it's challenging. Like, even re- when I was reading this, I have my jewels. Have I grown in my sarcasm? She's like, no. <laughs> I'm like, thanks. And then you're like, but I wasn't really saying thanks. I was sarcastic again. I'm like, thanks. I'm like, is it so detached from sincerity? Because, like, that's usually what it is. You say something and then it's like, no, I was being sarcastic. It's like, it's, I wasn't being sincere. Is, it that, is that what it is? Or is it more just kind of what you were saying, Fred, that it's just, it doesn't fit what God wants from speech? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it varies for person. I, thought, I know for me, personally, when I'm sarcastic, it's just I'm not being super vulnerable about a situation. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, bro, I don't really know what you're talking about. I'm not sure if I want to know. Because I'm like, wow, well, that's been hurting all these feelings. So I said, I'm like, wow, really? Well, if you define unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth as being something that doesn't build somebody else mm-hmm. up, yeah. then I don't, I mean, you can't rationalize sarcasm. It's, right. It may be funny, it may be, but, it, but does, it, does it ever build anybody up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it, it ever build fun? anybody up? Trust me, Fred, bro, pray for me. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, pray for me. <laughs> I want to stop doing that. I, I want to pray next year this time. Yeah, Steve is never sarcastic. He's amazing. <laughs> to the glory of Jesus. But I think a part of it sometimes we give him sarcasm because it, it attempts to fit in. That's just a, you know, that's like water cooler talk. We, we, we want to fit in. We say sarcastic things and we lose holiness in the process. So if you're struggling with sarcasm, we could start a breaking free group, man. We all just get together and just not be sarcastic for a whole hour. Oh, each other. I just realized I'm sarcastic online as well. Yeah, can I join that group? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a D group. online, it's, I do it there as well. We got, we got groups for almost every sin except that one, right? No one's trying to repent of their sarcasm. We just get in a group and we all just like, so how did it go this week? You're like, bro, I was like, I was out of control. Um, seriously, we might have to do that, and that probably a change Portland. People be like, "What? You got a group for sarcasm to change? You got a whole bunch of crowd coming in because this is rampant." Um, the other thing Paul says is, "Do not be unkind or bitter, but rather be kind and loving." I think most Christians, especially here, we're, we're, we're a generally kind group, but man, it's easy not to be kind, especially like you just mentioned, Renaldi. Online, man, people are, and I fellowship with some of these guys. They're mean. They're like, you are not a nice person online. In person, you're reasonable. Online, you just are like dangerous. And so it's really important. This is what Paul's talking about in verse 31 of um, the chapter 5, verse 2. And then, you know, don't joke about sex. That's another thing, especially amongst married people, that's easy to joke about sex. That's, of course, joking. But rather, give thanks for it. To say, hey, this is awesome, but it's easy in our culture just to joke about sex. And, and, and make it more crude. And Paul's like, that, that, that isn't what should describe a Christian. And again, I think that we've allowed the world to form us spiritually in this regard. That even the idea of not having crude jokes... You're probably like, well, it does. I'm still gonna have these crude jokes, and as soon as I get in the car, I'm about to say a crude joke to someone that I'm gonna talk to, 
and it just were so deeply formed. Like you guys saw my resistance to Fred saying sarcasm was a sin because it's deeply formed in me. I felt it. Every big part of me was like, Freddie Wright, but now you're wrong. Freddie Wright, now you're wrong. Fred, stop talking. And just like I was feeling it, like it's deeply formed sarcasm. But I think being crude, you know, like we, it just is a part of it. And I think, especially for you guys in here that are not married, it's really important that you understand like some of these things that you you might go to your first marriage retreat and be like, man, people talk crazy. You know, you first get married, you think you got to still be a Christian and then you hang around some other Christian that's been married for a while and it's like, oh, I don't have to be like... And then you learn bad examples, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not encouraging. But that happens. That happens. And your, your standard for those of you not yet married or desiring still to get married, your standard is Jesus. Your standard isn't any poor example that you see. And again, you're, 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 we're, we're swimming uphill. I mean, we're swimming upstream. Every TV show is filled with crudeness. It's just really tough. We're, we're in a tough world concerning that. Okay. Um, we're just going to summarize chapter 5, verses 5 through 21. Just for the sake of time. So in verses 5 through 7 in chapter 5, Paul just wants to talk about the certainty of judgment. I think as Christians, there will be a day of judgment. Now to what extent is hell eternal, is hell temporal, is whatever. There's a debate to be had there for sure. But there is a judgment where God will declare who's in the right and who's in the wrong through Jesus. And verses 8 through 14, he talks about the fruit of the light. Like, as followers of Jesus, we live for the light. You know, so we have nothing to do with shameful and dark deeds. And again, I think that if you've been in the dark for a very long time, it's really hard to come into the light. But man, there's so much mercy if you come into the light and you allow people to help you versus sometimes we stay in the dark so long we just destroy ourselves. By the time we come out, it, it just, you, you've made so many mistakes that the damage is just irrever- irreversible at that point. In verse um, 15 through 17, Paul talks about wisdom. Like, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but wise and making the most of every opportunity. Christianity requires great wisdom at every single day we encounter, every single challenge we encounter. And in the fullness of the Spirit, verse 18 through 21 is built in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, which is important, fellowship, worship, gratitude for everything. And then the linchpin to everything we just read from chapter 4 till now is submit to one another out of reverence. That verse connects to everything we just read above, and it will also connect with what we're going to talk about in terms of the, the family dynamic. Um, any questions or anything we want clarity on? I just kind of went through that just for the sake of time. Anyone want to push back on anything? Well, verse 19, how does that, how does that look on a, a week-to-week basis? Speaking of songs and hymns, like, that's something I, don't, I haven't really thought too deeply about. I've read this in the past. I, I think the early church met a little bit more than we did. And so they did these things together. So singing it. People are more likely, no pressure for the worship leaders, are more likely to remember the songs that were sung than they are to remember the words of a sermon. Like we'll probably all leave here and you're like, what did we do this little light of light? What did Steve talk about? Something in Ephesians, like a lot of different things. But we'll remember this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. Well, but the context of this is not a, a, a gathered worship. You don't think so? No. He says, don't get drunk on wine, which is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. You don't think it's fellowship? In fellowship, don't get drunk on wine? With each other? Well, I, I think it would include that. That's not referring to fellowship. Not necessarily the gather Sunday worship. Fellowship. They met each other more fellowship. I think he's talking is it, wine was a culturally acceptable thing. Mm-hmm. 
and people would, would misuse it and get drunk with it. And the result was, was um, the, the word for debauchery there in other translations is dissipation. Yeah. And that basically he's saying, you have a choice. You can be filled with the Spirit and sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and address one another in love, or you can dissipate your life into the bottle. And of course, if you look at the history of various, um, at, at that time, there was no meth and there was no heroin. There wasn't any other number, huge number Praise of God. dissipative things. They didn't even know what calf coffee was until the 1500s. So all these things, these these. So he's picking on wine here, but he's basically saying, we have a choice. We can dissipate our life into this thing which gives you nothing when you're done with it. Or we can be filled with the Holy Spirit make a difference in the world. I mean, that's just my feeling. It is kind of, this whole chapter feels like a more general kind of like, this is how you, you should, this is your mindset, you know, day-to-day life, this is the mindset you need to yeah. have. I don't know if it's referring to a specific situation. Though. Yeah, I think like Fred mentioned, I, w- I think in fellowship for sure, I mean, unless you want to sing songs to your friends too, you could do that. <laughs> and I definitely don't think you should be getting drunk with non-Christians. I think uh, <laughs> don't get drunk with Christians. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't do it with non-Christians. Definitely don't do it with Christians. <laughs> don't do it with anybody. Don't get drunk. Um, but I think just the community component of it. Because, you know, Paul's been talking the whole time about how we do this together. Mm-hmm. So even if I hung out with some of you guys and we went out for a beer and we're having a great time and we don't get drunk, that stands out to people. That really stands out. But also, if we got together and we got drunk, that stands out to people. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, the, these Christians... I don't know, they're getting drunk. And so, but I, I, so I think a lot of these things do overlap. But I, 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 so yeah. Um, any other thoughts, concerns, pushbacks, clarity before we wrap up? Going once, going twice. Sold. All right, we are done, guys.